This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. On this week's panel, we have the unsinkable optimist Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports writer in Toronto, Canada, the fiery badass Jessica Luther, independent writer and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas. The brilliant wordsmith, Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in D.C., and I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in the Hudson Valley, New York. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind all of you about our ongoing Patreon campaign. You can pledge a certain amount monthly and basically you become an official patron of the podcast, which helps us to pay for production costs so that we can deliver this every week. We are so grateful to everyone who has contributed. This week, we are going to ruminate on trolling and social media, particularly for women, people of color, and LGBTQ public figures in sport. We have two fabulous interviews. Amira talks to Major League Baseball's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, Renee Tirado, about her work to bring women into baseball's front offices and to make the sport more inclusive to black and brown fans, players, and communities. And Lindsay interviews Minnesota Lynx's head coach, Cheryl Reeve, about Lynx's eventful offseason, the WNBA draft, and improving the state of women in sport. And just before we go to our next segment, I do want to remind people that we will have a special Patreon episode up this week as well for patrons of the podcast, which is going to be on Tiger Woods' comeback and problematic faves. <laughs> This week, unfortunately, a very routine thing happened, which is we were trolled. <laughs> trolling, trolling happened. It happens most weeks to those of us who happen to write about sport and feminism. But we did want to spend some time examining it with a bit more gravitas. Jessica, do you want to lead us into this discussion? Yeah, I do. And I wanted to say at the top of this segment, in case someone only listens to the beginning and doesn't listen to the end, we are not firing Shri Ahmed. She's not going anywhere. <laughs> She's staying here forever, as long as we can keep her. So this week, Shireen was the target of intense social media harassment. I won't go into too much detail, but essentially, a website that does football in Europe, soccer in Europe, called Copa 90. They released a video about women's soccer. It had different people in it talking about it. One of the people in that video, popular sports commentator, football commentator, has problematic sexist tweets in his past. 
Shireen was one of a few people to point out that this is not the best person to be in the video. That was it. That's all she said. And the website responded directly to Shireen on Twitter and said that, what exactly did they say, Shireen? I'll let you fill that in. Yeah, it was pretty much, you know, we at COPA 90 don't, you know, we really abhor these kinds of things and we're, it's against our brand, like very typical. I'm not, I'm not really sure how much they looked into it, you know, that they just were apologetic that the whole thing happened and that they're looking through their contractual agreement with Poets Corner for this. And I think that therein lies a lot of the issues as it was a series of tweets. And uh, just very quickly, they said that they abhor. Yes, exactly. They recently became aware of sexist and uh, abhorrent sexist and unacceptable content posted on their social media. They named him poet on his personal Twitter. Management editors and producers of COPA 90 apologize unreservedly for any offense caused by his content. The views are at odds with fundamental ethos of COPA 90, (laughs) insert laugh, which is to reflect the world we want to live in, championing diversity through football, blah, blah, blah. It's COPA 90 is tightening its procedures to prevent unacceptable content being produced in our name or by anyone employed or contracted by COPA 90 in the future. We are reviewing our contractual relationship with Poet. Until this is agreed to our satisfaction, COPA 90 decided it is inappropriate for Poet to feature in our content. And they tweeted this at you? They tweeted all of that, all of that at me. <laughs> wow. Okay. So Poets Corner is the guy, Poets Corner UK. This was also based on a, a different website, Football 365. They have made a post about this. They ended up deleting that post. So that post doesn't exist anymore. Copa responded directly to Shreem. Poets Corner UK deleted his Twitter. So when people got mad that this very popular commentator was gone, the person that they had <laughs> left to direct that at was Shireen. And, a, and there was at least one other woman. And it was really bad. Uh, Burn It All Down got a little bit of sort of the like auxiliary of all that. But it was horrific gender-based harassment. And we wanted to talk about that because this is something that we all experience over and over again, uh, being women with opinions on the internet, especially about sports. And so I just wanted to give some general context to harassment in general. The Women's Media Center, as always, has really good stuff about this. And one of the things I wanted to start with is I wanted to note they do a good job of explaining why it matters when women are harassed versus when men are, because, of course, men are harassed, too. And they have this really interesting thing about how women report higher rates of finding online harassment stressful. And they had reasons for this, one being that women are already hypervigilant just in their everyday life because of the sexism that they face. Also, that this is an intersectional issue that for women of color, this is so much worse for disabled women, for LGBTQI people, that all of those groups are already experiencing other kinds of harassment on top of the fact that they are women. And then globally, I'm just going to quote it here, quote, globally, women still face sexist patriarchal constraints that compound the negative effects of online harassment, which means that if you live in any kind of patriarchal structure, the fear that what you're doing online will bleed into your real life could have real life consequences for you that you will be punished in your real life. And then on top of that, that men... They just don't have all the symbolism that goes along with it. There isn't a sexist culture that they're tapping into. And then I thought this was really important. They also know that online harassment exists on a continuum with offline violence, right? That these two things are not disconnected. And then for our purposes, 
the most trolled group, the most harassed group on the internet, according to Women's Media Center, are women journalists and writers. And the research shows that women silence themselves, opt out of doing work, avoid certain topics and are fearful and restrict their level of public engagement. That is something that I have absolutely done. On top of that, Amnesty International has done a lot of work around this, and they found that Black women in, in particular, they all, they Amnesty International did a thing where they looked at the tweets of U.S. and U.K. female politicians and journalists, and they found that Black women were disproportionately targeted, 84% more likely than white women to be mentioned in abusive or problematic tweets. One in 10 tweets mentioning Black women was abusive or problematic compared to one in 15 for white mm-hmm. women, which... All of those numbers are horrific. Women of color, which they define as Black, Asian, Latinx, and mixed-race women, were 34% more likely to be mentioned in abusive or problematic tweets than white women. So this is a huge problem. There's a specific group of people who gets targeted at, and it felt like this week, very sadly and frustratingly, we saw it like Shireen was just the epicenter, like the, the perfect example of how these things work. Yeah, the amnesty study is pretty important. It basically also identifies Twitter as the worst platform because of the speed with which it happens and also because of coordinated defamation. And this this happened, I think, this week. I mean, I don't have any evidence to prove it, but I've, I've felt the same a couple times where it's like the people who are attacking me they are in touch with each other in some yes, back channel. Yeah. That's yeah. what I said to Shireen. And, I was like, this and, is coordinated. And it happens really often. And people who have never really been targeted by it, I think it might be hard for them to understand the speed and the intensity with which it yes. happens. Yes. Yeah. It, it happened to me. And then there were a group of journalists who really did not like what I said about Copa Libertadores. And then another time about Cristiano Ronaldo, because anytime you write about Cristiano Ronaldo no matter what, you're going to get a billion people. But I actually had another journalist tell me, like, these people are in a WhatsApp chat and they're right now talking about you and they're right now deciding that they're going to go after you. And it was like, it was really, really intense. So there's a coordination that happens that's really important to to keep in mind, I think. Shireen, I don't know if you felt like that same feeling as well, that there was some coordination in this. But. You know, I hadn't thought about it until, of course, I reached out to you folks immediately, like literally within like half an hour of it starting and like the avalanche. And Jessica said immediately that this is, there's probably like a subreddit somewhere where they're all, they're all doing this and, or there's something somewhere where it's very, it's a coordinated attack, a targeted attack. And I just, for me, it was it was the deluge of it all at the same time of people. And then, you know, the pop-ups coming of the, the Justice for Poet. And I just want to say, not because I have to, but because I want to, I in no way lobbied for this young man. I don't know how old he is, so I'm going to say young because, like, I always feel like I'm older than everybody except for Dave Zirin. I feel like... I didn't lobby for his firing and that's not what I wanted. And before, and him like deleting his Twitter, he didn't delete his Instagram, which I find really interesting. And there's been no comment on it on his Instagram either. And I'm sort of like, okay, this is, so I've, you know, opined about reaching out to him, but I'm not going to at this point, but him deleting his Twitter really, cause I responded to his like a public comment saying, no, oh, this is great. You know, whatever, whatever. Like I appreciate your words because I do. 
I will. And because he is a young black man, I will give him that benefit of the doubt. I'm going to do that. And everybody has to unlearn some shit at some point. I certainly, certainly did. And still am on that journey. But it's just like it was so frustrating because it was constantly. And I mean, I, I have explained this to Jess. I was accused of reverse racism or reverse sexism. And I mean, when women are trolled and they're trolled for like absolutely no reason whatsoever, someone doesn't need an excuse to abuse you. They just do. And I could almost find it comical. I could find the funny. And then when male friends of mine and allies were stepping forward, because many were, and I do want to thank everybody out there that did that, whether it was reporting and blocking, and and, and there were significant people who I consider friends and colleagues actually stepping up to engage them. But I will also add this really quickly. If you do do that for someone that's getting abused online, please remove their tag. Yeah, untag them. Please untag because I just ended up getting all the responses and I see the work that you're doing and I appreciate it. But I just, please untag. Like, I just don't want to constantly see that stuff because I'm already dealing with everything. Well, what I was going to say was just that one of the replies to my male friends was she's not going to shag you, mate. That was Which like, just shows what they <laughs> think about women and men's relationship to women is that it begins and ends with shagging. Like, they're just telling on themselves every time. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, it's also a fantasy about their relationship to the person that they're protecting. Yes. So it's like with oh, Ronaldo. Brenda. Yes. Well, well, with <laughs> Ronaldo all the time, we kept getting things, whether I was writing with Shereen or Jen, Jennifer Doyle or myself, it all I would get were things like, were you in the room? He's such a, who would say no to him? And it's like, wow. You want five minutes you. of fame. Yeah. You want five yeah. minutes of fame. Yeah. But it's also a fantasy that they have a closeness with this celebrity, that they somehow are invested in their reputation. Lindsay? Yeah. Sorry, this is a lot here. And it's taken me back to so many times when, you know, I've been the target of similar, I guess, instances. I mean, we all experience it to varying degrees. And, you know, it's you prepare yourself for it and you know when it's coming. But it still can be really hard, right? And they go after things like, look, I'm a fat single woman. And they like to point that out <laughs> all the time, right? And there's really no comeback to that, except that I don't really care. But, you know, they just go after these things. And it can be so draining. But I think the coordinated part here is what's really sticking out to me. You know, I want want to give a shout out to the More Than Mean video, which Julie DeCaro and Sarah Spain were part of a couple of years ago. And Julie, of course, is one of the founders of Burn It All Down and uh, used to be one of our co-hosts. And it was a video in which regular men, normal men, men from the street, right, (laughs) read comments to Sarah and Julie's faces that other trolls had said to them online, you know, so it was like putting the voice um, in a face to this. And, and, and it was, we'll link it in the show notes. It's still one of the most kind of moving show moving, like, YouTube videos I've ever seen. um, Because the rape threats, the death threats, the attacks are 
when you hear them out loud, they take your breath away is what they do, right? They literally just kind of take your breath away. And, you know, I know Julie has dealt with because she's a radio, you know, she's on the radio in Chicago. And, you know, we've all seen the trolls that that she deals with because they're coordinated, right? Like they're all in there in Chicago. So it's when these fan groups get mobilized, right, in these places that it gets really, really scary. And, you know, the truth is, it's, it is, I see my male colleagues be harassed online a lot. But I think what really sets it apart is, like Jess was saying in the intro, the the threat of violence and harassment that women do face in our everyday lives, right? Like, when I get a rape threat online, that means something different to me because of what I've been through, right? That's not like this abstract thing. I mean, this week, I'm not going to get too much into what's been happening at my place of work this past week over at Think Progress and the nonprofit, which we are housed in, the Center for American Progress, it's a whole nother thing. But I mean, the amount of online abuse that my colleagues have been taking this week, the amount of extra security that has had to come because of that, <laughs> because of politics, and because of organized communities online, it has real world implications. It gets terrifying. And I don't know where I don't know where it ends. And I look, I I spent I feel bad because I spent a lot of this week just being like, Shereen, just mute, just mute and block, mute and block, because it was the only thing I could think to say. And it's the only way I am able to function most days. But that's not a real solution. Right. Just. Yeah. And I think the solution part of it is the real bummer and all this for all the like harassment itself. There's like, what? the fuck do you do when you're in it and and you are the target of it? And there are so few options, which a lot of that is on these companies, on these social media platforms that just don't seem to care at all about this. We could talk endlessly about diversity issues at those places themselves. And, and so you are left as an individual up against a coordinated attack, working on a platform that doesn't care at all about you. So, you know, I just want to say the other thing is, it's terrifying. Lindsay said it's terrifying and scary. It's also like zaps your productivity, your ability to focus, all of those things. Like if you are ever the target of this stuff and that's how you feel, that's totally normal. And just know that there are at least Twitter has, I don't even want to say anything nice about Twitter. If you yeah, check out my own don't. Twitter account, you'll see that I have <laughs> vastly pulled away from it over the last few months. But there are good filters. You can put filters on there under set- settings and privacy or something like that. I have one set so that I only see mentions from people who already follow me. And that has cut down drastically on the kind of shit that I actually see. It still exists. It's out there. I just don't see any of it. Um, and that has helped my mental health. I also just, as I said, I I do walk away from it. I do give up the platforms. I do give up the spaces, which is unfair. But also, we have to take care of ourselves as individuals. And it sucks that it's like that. Shereen? Yeah, I um, reported a lot and very often. I mean, there's one um, at Justice for Poet. It's an account with my name and my tag actually in the bio saying that I should have my career should end. Um, they kept calling for the my firing, which was 
kind of funny because I'm a freelance journalist. So I'm sort of like, they really don't know how this works. But in terms of mental health, I just to respond to that, I got nothing done on Thursday. And Friday was, I'm not Catholic, but it was Good Friday. It's a stat holiday in Canada. Nothing really needed to be done. I'm leaving for vacation. So I needed to wrap some things up, but I really didn't get anything done. I just sort of immersed myself in my kids. And that was what I needed to do. I brought my son home from school wrapped up his first day of university and I shared it with him. And I was sort of telling him as we drove back from campus what was going on. And he was just like, yeah, that's really brutal. And he goes, you guess you understand who does this, though, mama, right? And my kids were like, because that's the other thing. I have children that are old enough to be online. They're old enough to see people calling me like a cunt. They're old enough. They're And, and to what Lindsay said, my bio list that I'm a single mom, that experience was probably the most difficult I've ever I've ever survived. And for people to go through and say things like, now we know why your baby daddy left you. Like that was really, really, really difficult to read, even though those people know nothing about me and nothing about my situation, which is wasn't what happened. But those stabs, they, they do, they hurt. And that's what they're meant to do. So anyways, the end of the day, like I want to see Copa 90, you know, be accountable for stuff and not just blame it on one person. F365, like completely took down their post, which was the catalyst for everything to begin with. I actually want them to be accountable because the way that they've handled this is also really terrible. Um, Twitter, I don't rely on at all. And I hate giving up spaces because I need Twitter. I need social media in order to do the work I do. And then it just leaves me with no option. And I, but Jess is right. It's got to be mental health first. It's become like a survival thing. And I just, again, want to thank the burn it all down crew for being as supportive because I know, you know, what I've went through, you've all been through it and it, it sucks. So solidarity with anybody out there that's going through this and do what you need to do. Put your own mask on first to get through. Now, Amira sits down with Major League Baseball's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, Renee Tirado. Hey, y'all. Amir here. And I am delighted to sit down with and chat with Renee Tirado, who is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer um, for Major League Baseball. Renee, thank you. Welcome to the pod. Thank you, Amir. Appreciate you guys hosting me. Yeah. So let's just start. Like, how long have you been um, with the MLB and what does your long fancy title mean? (laughs) I joined MLB. This would have been three years this past February, March. So not that long. And this long fancy title is actually not that super fancy. (laughs) This is really all about ensuring that we're creating an environment, a sport, a, a job community that is attractive to anybody and everybody who wants to be a part of our game. So without any barriers to entry, with the appropriate amount of equity distributed amongst men, women, people of color, people with different abilities, orientations, etc. So I help drive that strategy for our uh, organization, not only the Office of the Commissioner and the network as well as our advanced media group, but uh, we support all 30 teams in our 30 markets and as well as, as well as our international offices and some of their activations. Wonderful. So one of the ways you do that is I, I've heard about this initiative, Take the Field. Can you tell me a little bit more about that particular initiative? Yeah, that was something we were really excited to put together. So 
it came up, we, did, we delivered this in December of 2018 at our winter meetings. And it really, I, I would be remiss to say that I dreamt this up myself. And it was this brilliant idea when, in fact, I actually respectfully borrowed it um, from my colleagues, Samantha Rappaport at the NFL, who have been doing a similar program, creating a multi-day platform to try to help women who were interested in on-the-field roles in and they in football and I she was kind enough to invite me to these sessions for the last few years and it's been I've been mulling over how do we do it in baseball and do it in a way that's meaningful right and making it especially high touch with our clubs because the goal is to place these women in roles in jobs to get them exposure so winter meetings was the perfect platform to host these women to come in to talk about and give them two big things I wanted to do one is to make sure that they got practical experience about what it would look like to be a part of a particular discipline in baseball that they had interest in, whether it was scouting, performance, umpiring, et cetera. So we actually had the women pre-select the tract that they wanted to be involved in. And so while there were some general sessions, they would break out into their respective tracts of interest. And we had you know, actual coaches and and club personnel come in and lead those discussions and lead some practical application around that. The second thing that we wanted to get out of Take the Field was to make sure that these women also had an opportunity to showcase their talent in front of and network with our clubs directly. I don't necessarily think that there's a lack of appetite or willingness to have women in our game or on the field as much as it is they don't get the exposure that they need to get. And as I'm sure you're very well aware, sports is very relationship driven. It's very much, you know, people making decisions right or wrong of around who they're comfortable with, who they know, who's proven in their mind. So what better way to show that these women have, I don't want to say the cojones <laughs> to do this type of work <laughs> and be out there with their male counterparts, you know, just as at a similar high level as uh, their male counterparts and to actually get them in front of the guys who are making the decisions around who's going to be a part of their team in the future. So we created this this one day program with a lot of, again, breakout sessions, you know, part motivational, but I really wanted to make sure we focused on the practical so that they left there with a substantive, at least or foundational start to the skill set that they needed, left there with an understanding of potentially what gaps that they had to close. And most importantly, created some relationships with MLB personnel to, you know, grow and build out. So when they were ready, or if they are ready, these were go-to candidates for our clubs. Yeah, that's really dope. You know, we talk a lot about the long history of women in baseball. I write about Black women who played in the Negro League, just um, went to the baseball World, Women's Baseball World Series. And so I think a lot of times when we think about women in baseball, you know, even apart from a league of their own, we're talking about playing. And so I think it's really dope to like be able to have the conversation, the spotlight on also like the front office and, and you know, the sideline, the dugout and all of that stuff. Um, it's really necessary work. And kind of in align with that, you know, we just recently did Jackie Robinson Day, and I saw um, a clip of you uh, talking last year, I believe, when MLB did their first float in the Pride Parade. And one of the things that you said is, like, we have to return to the fact that this is the league of Jackie Robinson. And I also think, you know, and like, you know, Clemente as well. And so what is it about baseball particularly? You said you borrowed, you know, some of this from football. And I'm thinking football and basketball, you know, these have 
majority black and brown leagues at this point, um, particular way, either the NFL kind of working against that or the NBA, who's like what I say, engage in woke branding and leaning all the way in to those players. When you think about Major League Baseball, when you think about the kind of image of it, uh, the kind of history of it, how do you then think about, you know, getting it to black and brown communities and as well supporting those players in the league? So it's not easy. And it has to be interdisciplinary, intersectional approach, right? So I'm glad you mentioned that, that, that statement I made because we do, especially in my department, right? We take it very, very seriously. Our driving principles within my team are, you know, with a sport of Jackie Robinson, we hope to exemplify the character of Roberto Clemente and stand with the conviction of Sandy Koufax. So that is everything that we frame our decisions around. So, you know, we're, we're trying to make sure that not only are we creating things programmatically to engage new audiences and to bring new talent into baseball on and off the field, we also want to make sure that the culture is ready for them to be successful. And sometimes that's the harder part because the talent is out there, right? We know that. There's a lot of talent out there, and it's just a, a matter of kind of making sure we're positioning our, positioning our brand the right way in front of these new audiences. One of the things that I had an opportunity to do last year that was part of the strategy around engaging these particular demographics was just almost kind of going on a speaking tour, talking to HBCUs and HSIs, and you know, saying yes to maybe panels that were not that were not talking to baseball audiences. And telling the baseball story and explaining the business of the game more broadly. And you would be two things that I got out of it was one, there were a lot of people of color and women and people of different orientations who really, really, really loved baseball and wanted to be a part of the game. But just as much, they just didn't understand our business model. They didn't know how we operated. They didn't think about the fact that, yes, there's the office of the commissioner and there are all these roles that fall into two categories, business operations and baseball operations. And there are different skill sets for both of that. But at the end of the day, we're still a corporation that has very traditional tracks, right? So if you are an accountant, there might be a role for you here. In addition to that, we had 30 franchises that are many corporations that have additional opportunities. So it's about really kind of I don't want to say relaunching the brand because our brand is very, very strong domestically and globally amongst a broad audience. It was kind of reframing it in the sense of kind of telling the story about what baseball was and has been historically to these particular groups, you know, that uh, for women, that the game was not just this phenomenal movie with Madonna and Madonna, right? There was so there are so many other stories of women, women of color um, that participated in the game that still participate in the game on a regular basis. Sharing those narratives, talking a little bit more about you know the history of the Negro League and how it supported economies, and bringing those aha moments to them to see that it makes sense for them to pursue us as an opportunity of choice, you know, or figuring out where they want to spend their entertainment dollars, we'll choose baseball because we still have the best, I think, family model in sports. We're still economically accessible compared to our counterparts. And we offer so many more opportunities to participate in our game because we have so many more games, you know? So, it was really, really, again, reframing the value proposition of baseball to these audiences. And on the other side of that is how do we make sure that the culture 
is ready to support these fans and these employees when they come into baseball. So, you know, all the things we do programmatically around recruiting and talent, these are not just, you know, we're identifying resumes, getting them in for interviews. They still close the deal. They get the job and we're one and done and buy, right? Check the box. That's one more number. Let's on to the next. We're providing support for all of these candidates that come into this game. They get mentors, you know, they get coaching, they get opportunities to, you know, see where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are and where their weaknesses are. We try to help them make sure they close the gaps effectively. Um, So we're trying to level out the playing field as much as possible to create an environment, not only where they will succeed, but they will stay. I'm not just concerned with getting them in. I'm, my priority is to get them and keep them so that they become the future leadership of this game. So that's a part of it. You know, with respect to the players, we have a lot of player programs that support players on a variety of levels, but that's, we can't, that's not compulsory, right? They, they have to kind of opt in to our player programs and kind of take advantage of that. But I am very proud of the slate of content that we have available to them educationally, emotionally, psychologically, and to the wives and their families as well. There is a lot there that they can take advantage of. And, you know, hopefully as time goes on, we'll be able to have more impact in that space as well. But again, when you look at it, and hopefully it's coming across, this is a holistic agenda. It's not just, you know, let's just get some brown faces and estrogen in the boardroom because that's not going to be enough. We have to make sure that the ecosystem is there in the right way so that they can thrive. So that's how what we're focusing on. And um, it's not super easy. The beauty about baseball is that it's rich in tradition. And sometimes that's also very difficult to change or at least evolve because we don't necessarily want to change it. We just want to evolve it. But I will say I've been in this diversity space for about nine years now, and I have not been in an environment and not have not had uh, the leadership support that I've had here anywhere else. But from, you know, the commissioner, my own direct, I report directly into deputy commissioner, Dan Halem has been a tremendous champion around this agenda. And this does not get done without that type of leadership. So I'm grateful that the ground is fertile to do more and we have more to do. That's clear. But I have a system in place. I have a support system. I have colleagues and I have supervisors and employees that are all bought into it and are ready to go. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. And I think one of the things that you you mentioned is where I see a lot of, you know, the disconnect with baseball, which is that it is balancing this tradition with this evolution or or really a return to form. And it feels like it's like things like this week with um, Tim Anderson's, you know, bat flip and the idea of like unspoken rules where you see various ways that walls get put up to people who get turned off. Um, and so it's really great to to think about ways that we can, you know, get people back in and invested in and supported. Exactly right. And again, you know, those things require a little bit more time. You know, we just have to, we got to listen, the more fans we bring into the game, the more diverse fan base we bring into the game, the younger fan base that we bring into the game in different capacities, because they're consuming it differently, right? It might not be that they're engaged in the stadium itself, right? Um, As we continue to figure out those touch points, I think organically, you will see our traditions remain intact, but they will be modernized. 
Uh, and that's the goal. It's a, it's a very delicate balance, but with what I see happening internally, again, around the culture and ecosystem and, you know, a lot more collaboration interdepartmentally, the fact that, you know, the diversity department does work closely with the youth programs department. We are talking to our marketing department to serve, you know, their needs to help them make sure that they're doing the best that they can do. I think that's a step in the right direction, uh, but it's a marathon, not a race. Um, so I ask everyone, our baseball fans and especially our women, be patient, but stay committed to us because I think there's going to be a lot of exciting things to come. Um, and to come join us, you know, join the, join the cause. Uh, it's a great game. It's, and there's so much history. It's had so much impact on so many diverse populations in this country. It's time for us to reclaim a little bit of that again. So I heard you were a Knicks fan. Good to have like baseball rooting interest too. Do you still go for the New yeah, York no, teams? Yeah, no, I'm right or die. That's not. I'm not a fair weather fan. Uh, I'm I'm a born and raised in Brooklyn. You know, I live in New York now, so I don't. I have my teams, which I will stay neutral right now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if there is a New York team in any type of you know championship or playoffs, I'm right there, full on. Listen, I really like you, and that's right for me to like me. Like I'm, I'm such a Red Sox, you know, homer. So it's like I'm like, but I vibe you with you so much. When you told me you were from Massachusetts, <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna let it go. So she seems like she's down. So I'm, I'm, we're gonna, we're gonna right. put that aside, and we're gonna just try to find the commonalities. Look, maybe we could, maybe exactly. we broke the peace accords between Massachusetts and New York. Exactly, know. exactly. <laughs> So my last question for you is, you know, what does it mean to you? What is it like to be a Latino within the world of sports? I think it's a, a huge place where there's a, a lack of representation across the board, both on the field, in front offices, in management positions. Um, it's something I have a graduate student who's writing what's going to be a really amazing history of Latinas in sport. Um, but I feel like that's something that is just so, so vastly underrepresented and you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts about what it is to occupy this space. You know, first of all, I'm very blessed to have had this trajectory that I've had. So I don't take that for granted. And to me, that uh, goes hand in hand with, you know, taking that. I take that as a responsibility. I don't have an issue being that person for the Latino community. And I know some people don't like that burden. Sometimes they feel it's a lot of work. I don't, I personally think I have a responsibility to continue to, as much as I can, serve as an example, aspirational, inspirational, and hopefully strategically for other Latinos to engage in our sport. Again, to your point, and I really want to read that paper from your student when, when it's all said and done. We're here, right? We're just sometimes not visible. For a variety of reasons, right? Because the diaspora of Latinos is so varied. You know, we might be in the room and you don't even know we're there unless somebody says something to us in Spanish or makes a certain reference. So for me, it's a priority to make sure that I share my story. I hope to use it to encourage more Latinos to participate in our game on the business side and also on the field and especially women because we're pretty badass. And I'm not the only one. You know, there are actually more of us here than that. You know, Veronica Alvarez has been a great champion of, you know, showcasing uh, Latinas, especially for on the field opportunities and roles. So there are others. We just tend to be a little bit more low key. 
So wherever I can kind of wave the flag, the uh, the flag is really big here. <laughs> I, I have it. Right. I, I, if I could wear a, my, you know, Puerto Rican T-shirt every day, I would. But we're business casual, so I got to tell that. But with, there are a ton of young professionals at the office of the commissioner that are Latino. They're emerging. I tell you to sit tight. They will be leaders of this game. Our fellowship program that we launched last year, a third of the class was Latino. Um, so there's there's a trajectory there, and there's a, there's a trajectory here. For my community. And if I can lay the foundation and if I can open the door and just as importantly, if I can step aside to let them in, uh, I will do so happily. So that's that's part of my charge here. It's not only the commitment to MLB, but it's also the commitment to making sure kids and young adults or people aspiring to be a part of this game who look like me, sound like me, know that it's an option for them. So I'll raise the banner and do whatever I have to do to make sure that uh, I stay accessible to the community and, you know, keep the message alive. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Burn It All Down. Uh, You are now a flamethrower and we look forward to seeing what you have in store for MLB in the future. Thank you so much. I'm very proud to officially call myself a flamethrower. Who knew? Here's Lindsay's interview with Minnesota Lynx's head coach, Cheryl Reeve. Hello, everyone. This week, this is Lindsay here, and I have a very special guest here on Burn It All Down, the head coach of the Minnesota Lynx, Cheryl Reeve herself. Cheryl, welcome to Burn It All Down. Thanks, Lindsay. It's great to be here with you. So look, obviously, I want to just dive right in. Last year was... The first year in a while, we've seen the Lynx really struggle. You guys had made it look so easy for so many years. And of course, you know, realistically, it's not that easy. <laughs> but somehow, you had made it look that easy. I remember you continuously saying in, uh, in interviews, you know, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. You know, it's a lot more difficult. And we know that. What was your mindset headed into last season? How disappointing was that for you? And how were you trying to look forward? What was your mindset going forward? Well, going into the the 2018 season, you know, certainly the mindset was we had just won a championship in 2017. You know, hindsight is 2020. When I go back and I think about, you know, sort of the narrative after we won, it was pretty exhausting. It was a huge accomplishment to, to win again, you know, but kind of now having gone through 2018 and and beyond just, you know, where our players were at that time. I didn't necessarily see that. I was just in let's repeat mode. You know, that was, you know, I think it's been pretty well documented that we spent the off season, you know, Lindsay was here, you know, Simone stays stateside, Lindsay, you know, her motivation, you know, she was struggling. We started to modify things. I didn't want her to not like basketball. And so we tried to, you know, curb some activities that maybe didn't bring her joy. And we just tried to get to a point, you know, where, Hey, this is one more. Let's you know try to get everybody back together, get the band back together, and let's see what we can do. And and you know it was just before I was going to the Final Four that Lindsay popped in the office and said, "Coach, I don't know. I don't think I, I don't think I can do it. I don't know if I want to do it." And so that was sort of the start of, of 2018. You know, and like I said, it's well documented that we we talked about it. I wouldn't let her. I told her I did not accept her resignation. <laughs> <laughs> so we got we got a good laugh out of that. And. uh but I just told her I felt like she would feel better if she would have one more year and be sure. 
So, you know, we went through the season. You know, we didn't get off to a good start. As I look back on it, our training camp was not very good. Our offense was not very good. But, I, you know, you just chalk it up to it's, it's, a, it's a group that knows what they're doing. And, and by the time, you know, the ball tips on our home opener, we would be ready to go. And the home opener was, was a big-time sign. You know, it was against the Sparks. You know, I think both the, the Lynx and the Sparks, it's, it's, a, it's a certain level that you have to reach, uh, not just physically, but, you know, the mental aspect of playing the Sparks. It, it got exhausting, and I, I'm sure that they feel the same because if we didn't bring our A game, we weren't going to win. And, and we didn't bring our A game in that home opener. And we got off to a rough start, probably our worst start in, in a long time. And yeah, it was just, it was just challenging. There were, there were certainly some great moments. I think we rattled off seven wins and, you know, kind of got our feet under us. And, and then, you know, ultimately just our offense was not the juggernaut that uh, it had been through our championship years. And, you know, our defense was not as good. And, and so it kind of led to, you know, just, just above average, you know, we were able to make the playoffs and win 18 games, but it was just a little bit short of what, what this team had been doing. And of course, with the talent in the WNBA and the way the playoffs, there's no wiggle room there. You have to continue. If you're not getting better, you're falling, you're falling behind. This offseason also has been an eventful one for the, the team. I don't think that's any, I'm not breaking any news here. Obviously, Lindsay retired. And I know Rebecca is still dealing with some health issues a little bit. And of course, it was announced that Maya Moore is not coming back. When did you find that out? And, and was that something that you were, were expecting? You know, I would say that that, again, hindsight, when you go back, you know, there, there were certain times over the last few years that Maya, you know, had a different look about her, you know, a look in her eye and, and you know, even body language at times that were causes for concern as a coach. And, and so we, we had conversations about it and, you know, just what she was struggling with in terms of, you know, being Maya Moore is, is difficult and really being the Minnesota Lynx during the time is difficult in that the expectations were so incredibly high. And I think Maya said it best, our normal is so much higher than everyone else's normal. And so reaching normal every day just took a great deal of energy and sacrifice. And, you know, I think, you know, as it came out, you know, I, I w- didn't necessarily know for sure what direction she would go, but I, you know, there were signs last season that Maya, you know, was just struggling overall you know, just probably not necessarily just basketball, but just life in general, you know, 29 years old, about to turn 30. And I think you just start to look around and go, I've been doing this basketball thing for a long time. And it's been wonderful. It's been great to her, you know, but then there's other things that that you sacrifice. And all of our players have made those sacrifices during our, you know, the eight years we spent together, you know, and winning championships and competing at a high level. None of us would, would trade it for anything. At the same time, we've all sacrificed quite a bit. And I think Maya just made that recognition and she said, I need to, I need to hit the pause button here and, and try to sort through some things. And that's what she's doing now. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, in a more positive note for the, your team and, and I'm assuming for you as general manager and head coach, a lot of people came away from draft night saying the links are the winners here. I mean, I'm looking through your hall. I mean, it's just steal after steal of players that I feel like could have gone much higher. Starting, of course, with Nafisa uh, falling to the sixth pick and getting her and then, you know, getting Jessica Shepard and Sierra Dillard and Natasha Heidemann in the, in the second round. So how exciting is it after having so many years of, you know, a veteran team, a team you know really well, a team who you know really who the leaders are, and now you've got so many young and new faces coming into the mix. As a coach, does that kind of give you an extra spring in your step? (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, and I, you know, it's, it's sort of the, you know, and kind of how you, how you deal with things that, you know, I'd certainly, you know, would love to, to have, you know, the group that we've had for so long, you know, still together and enjoying what we're doing, but it's simply not the case. You know, we've got retirement and we've got, you know, other issues that, you know, it's kind of, you know, taking away from that group. And so, you know, it's on how you look at it. And I just think we have a, a really good opportunity to retool the roster. You know, what time will tell with regard to the draft. Everyone's ecstatic on draft night, typically. You know, our team was no different. You know, we spent a lot of time, you know, preparing. You know, we had five picks and you know, we wanted to maximize, you know, each of those picks. And certainly we, we value Nafisa Collier. I think there's a lot of good players in the draft. We just happen to think that she probably right now is the best overall player. And, and we'll have to see, you know, where we can get her to in terms of her future. But it just was really important for us, for us to get that level of player. So we were excited there. And, you know, we'll see about the second round picks. It does get more difficult, you know, the deeper you go into the draft. And, you know, we were able to make a trade for, for a player that we think is pretty good in Lexi Brown. So we've got a lot of new opportunities. And I think the player I'm most excited about is actually one of our returners. And that's Danielle Robinson. You know, that I think that, you know, her ability now to, to have it be her team. You know, last season she was kind of trying to navigate, you know, the end of Lindsay Whalen error and, you know, how does she fit in? And, and now it's going to be her team. And, you know, that injury she sustained at the end of the season put her in position to be here in market uh, the entire offseason. And she has worked really, really hard, not just to get back healthy, but just to improve her game. We spent a lot of time watching video and making pick and roll reads and her becoming a better shooter. And and I think our fans are going to be really impressed with, with what she looks like when she comes back. Yeah, I cannot wait to see her and her high speed uh, <laughs> play kind of back on the court and especially with all of those weapons around her. One of the talks, and you mentioned earlier that a lot of your players have, you know, in the past few years stayed in Minnesota during the off season. You also alluded to the uh, exhaustion that it becomes of these WNBA players of Maya Moore's and even the bench players who are literally playing often 12 months a season. Do you see, is that on your hierarchy of things that you would like to change is I would imagine as a coach, the ability to have the players here year round has to be pretty high on your list. Yeah, I would say it's number one. You know, I think that, you know, highlighted right now with Brianna Stewart's injury, this is harmful to our league. You know, it affects the product on the floor and we, we've got to find a solution, you know, to this. And, you know, it's, it's not just the overseas play. You also throw in USA basketball, you know, so the elite players are just being pulled in so many directions. And, and frankly, I think they've handled it really well, but it takes a toll. It, it gets to the point where someone like a Diana Trossi, who, you know, is one of our all time great players to ever play in our league, uh, takes a year off uh, from the WNBA. Or, you know, in this case, Brianna Stewart is injured or I can t- I can speak to the mental toll. You know, when our players come back, you know, we're constantly making concessions. We, you know, we have to change, you know, how much time we can spend on the court with them. And so you just lose the ability to to have this individual improvement, you know, when there's no off season. And then I just think certainly, you know, modifying, you know, activities to do right by the players, because when they get back there, they're exhausted. And, you know, I understand it, you know, the, the financial piece of it. But we've got to find a solution that will allow our players to stay home and be the best that they can be. And it's just overall going to help the product in the long run. Yeah, because you're looking at a, at a season where, I mean, Maya Moore and I mean, for different reasons, but we might not have Liz Cambage and, you know, Brianna Stewart, you know, now with injury. I mean, these are three of the top faces of the league. And 
it seems like more money could could solve this. I guess it's just the question is, you know, where does that money come from? And different coaches are uh, involved in different to different extents in things like collective bargaining and advocating for the league. You've always been very outspoken yourself. I know. Uh, do you talk to the players about contract negotiations? Do you stay away from that? What are you hoping happens this summer through this negotiating period? Well, I, I think it's an important time. And, and you know, you, you mentioned where's the money going to come from. And I think that, you know, that's obviously the, you know, the, if I could, million dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that, but it's pretty simple. Where does it come from in men's sports? Uh, and where it comes from is in TV dollars. It comes from sponsorship dollars. And it's come from the league investing in players and a long-term investment mindset. So, you know, it, it's pretty simple in terms of what needs to happen, you know, how to get there and how to change the minds of decision makers in the way that they view women, uh, women in sport. You know, sports is a microcosm of society. Uh, how do we treat women in business? You know, I think you're going to find the same thing. It's you're, you're constantly pushing, you know, for equality in the way that we're treated. And so sports is no different. And, and we've got to change the minds, you know, the societal norms uh, with re- with regard to women. And I think when you see that change, and I just think we, you know, we have a unique opportunity, you know, the NBA does, in that they're seen as a progressive league, that, you know, they're an iconic brand. And I think the idea of being a leader in society, that would mean that you're the one putting your foot forward saying, do this with us, treat women this way with us. And, and you sort of, you know, create a chain reaction by you stepping forward and saying, you will do this because it's important. And I think when you see that, you know, that opportunity, I, I think, you know, minds will change. And, and some of the greatest, uh, I think, women's basketball programs, you know, to, to be able to, you know, get an attendance where the crowd is full, oftentimes it's the decision that's made. If you're going to buy a men's, uh, men's basketball ticket, you're going to buy a women's ticket. If you don't want to do that, then you don't get a ticket. I think the, the places that have done that, that have treated them the same and said, you know, and use the leverage of men's sports. Uh, they've had a chance to be successful. And I think that would be no different for our league. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about women in coaching, which I know is a topic you're passionate about and has, you know, been kind of, there's been a national conversation sparked. Um, you know, I talked to Muffet McGraw and she said that she was, you know, she was done hiring male coaches. That that was kind of the new line that she was or that she had been drawing, but she was kind of coming out and saying it it publicly that she wasn't going to do that going forward. And I know you have uh, this year a lot of women on your staff and 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 always. And you know you've hired. I'm especially intrigued by hiring Planet Pearson because you see so few WNBA players getting opportunities to coach in the league, whereas it's very normal uh, on the men's side. What do you feel about the state of women coaching, and 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 how do we get more women in the door? Well. You know, and, and, you know, I can respect Muffet's opinion that, you know, that if we're not doing it, who's going to do it? And and I think that's sort of the mindset. And I'm always mindful of that. I have not gone, gone so far as to say that I won't hire men. I think the solution is for uh, women to have opportunities to coach both men's sports and women's sports uh, the same way that men have. We're probably a little ways away from that. But again, and when I speak to the NBA being leaders, uh, look what they're doing with, with hiring players or former players to coach in their league you know, in the NBA. So, you know, we're seeing that door being opened. How far away are we from being able to coach men's basketball? I think that's a different animal, but I think that's what has to change. I hate to eliminate any part of the workforce, but that's what men do. They don't even consider women to coach. And so I think we got to continue to push for that. And, and, you know, in terms of former players, you know, that's just a, a natural thing. We need to do more of it. You know, typically it's a, 
you know, the idea that when you go from player to coach, you know, there's not a level of experience that, that your coaching staff would want. But to me, they have to start somewhere. And someone like Planet for me was such a natural fit. We had such a connection when, when she was playing. And I'm just happy to have her, you know, uh, to be able to, to be a voice on our team. Uh, and I think all of our teams, I know there was a lot of talk at one time, you know, a few years back to, to have one position dedicated uh, to former players. But that requires an investment financially. And, and where does that come from? And that's why that continues to, you know, kind of be dormant is because we don't have, you know, someone stepping up and saying this is important. So it, it just comes down to, you know, each staff, you know, being mindful of that. And a, a, a plenty of players want to coach. I know that. And, and um, <laughs> we're, we're happy that we have Planet. Absolutely. I cannot wait to see her in the mix again. I was reading your Players Tribune article where you said your first year with a Charlotte Sting, your pay is an assistant coach. Your pay was $5,000 a season. Is that, was that a typo? <laughs> <laughs> no. And it, can you imagine calling the family and saying, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, whatever old I was, I would think it was probably, I don't know, close to 40 at that time. And uh, no, actually, it was earlier than 40. because I've been in the league, what, 18, 19 years, and I'm 52 now. So anyway, but the idea was I had I had a, a master's level of education. And here I was going to take a $5,000 seasonal position. And But the mindset, you know, for me, is I think many of us, you know, have had these opportunities that you say, you know what, if I can just get in the door, and I can prove myself, then then maybe something good can happen. And so, you know, I mean, if you want to get technical, it was 5,000 divided by six months. So it wasn't as bad <laughs> as if it was just for a year, but, uh, and they also provided an apartment. So I was, I was rolling in it, you know, but, but it led to, to great things. It led to other opportunities and, and, uh, you know, I have no regrets and, and, you know, I, I felt lucky that Ann Donovan, you know, thought I was worthy of the 5,000. <laughs> and I mean, I know I have friends who are from, you know, Minneapolis and talk about, they really feel like the city, the city treats the team really well, the links really well. And I know that you've gotten good attendance. Of course, you're always willing to call out media and everything, which I so appreciate when it's not enough and when you need more and when you're not being treated fairly. But it seems like the Timberwolves organization does invest in the women's team. Is that a correct <laughs> assumption? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they do. I, you yeah. know, I would say it's Glenn Taylor. You know, Glenn Taylor, you know, owns, uh, you know, and, and, you know, what you see from Glenn being courtside, you know, just a few seats away uh, is the epitome of, of Glenn. I can pick up the phone and call him anytime. He'll call me. We go to the house with the team and, and he just really cares. He's really invested. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, a few years back, I said I was, when, when Glenn hired me, uh, I felt like it was, you know, the, the idea that could we change the idea when, when Glenn uh, got the team, that it was more of a cause. It was more of a, hey, this is the right thing to do for women in our community. He wanted you know, young girls and boys uh, to see women playing professional basketball and create that as a, as a norm. And so it was more of a cause at that time. And, you know, I said that we were on a mission uh, to move from, you know, a cause to, to a championship team that was uh, really good business for him. You know, we're one of the few teams that have been consistently in the black during our, our successful run. So just to reward Glenn, you know, for the times that he's, he's stuck through it. Now I will say, you know, his NBA team also, you know, the, the investment there, you know, sometimes it doesn't uh, turn into the black. And so I felt glad that our team was able to do that, you know, and, and I just thought it was really important to reward him for his investment and we'll have to see if we can keep it going. 
Yeah, and it seems like it's a long way because to reference that Players Tribune article once again, one of the other things that stuck out to me, and look, I'm from North Carolina, so I, you know, I've always liked the Hornets, but you said that sometimes if the Hornets were practicing, the Sting weren't even allowed to be in the building because it might be too distracting to have women in the gym. Yeah, and it was just, you know, it was in 2001, and we have not, you know, maybe at that point we had not evolved men that were, were in the business. I think they were largely of that mindset that women around was a distraction. And I just think it's a, you do a disservice to the players, you know, that they don't, they don't feel that they're capable of, of separating, you know, seeing a woman walk in, you know, into a building. It just was so antiquated and discouraging. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that I think the league, the NBA has come a long way from that. There are still some, some of the uh, old school mentality for sure, not wanting to share, you know, with, with a women's team, not wanting them around, sometimes force change. Like in our situation, our owner laid down the laws. This is what it's going to be, you know, and get with the program. And and I think if everybody knows that and it starts from the top, it's great. And if you don't have that and you don't have the respect, uh, and we have seen that with some other WNBA teams, you know, it's just, it, it's discouraging. And like I said, I don't think it gives enough credit to uh, the players that are in the NBA. We have very little issues with, with, with the men's players in that they you know they're supportive and they're respectful and, uh, you know, they're fans. To me, sometimes, you know, as they say, it's not the it's not the kid, it's the parent. Right. That's a little bit, I think, sometimes what you see in the NBA. Yeah, that's such a good point. Look, I've already kept you for too long, but one more question. I hope you'll help us break news. Who is the new WNBA president? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Adam Silver loves me for this one. Okay. Uh, well, so, so, you know, my position on this is that, you know, you know obviously it's a very important position. And I know that that Adam is, and, and Mark Tatum are very interested in making sure we get the right person. Now, that sometimes implies that they weren't uh, on that path in the previous hires, but somehow this one's taking this much time. And I equate it to this. Their goal was to have or is to have a president in place before the start of our season. Now, this was back in, I believe, November that Lisa Borders resigned her position. That's the equivalent for, for me as the coach of the Lynx in a 12-team league to tell my team that the goal is to make the playoffs. It's not a very lofty goal (laughs) when eight, eight of the 12 teams make the playoffs. You know, I want that to be the expectation. And I say this to say that I feel like Adam and Mark should have a loftier goal because it's not putting this president in the best position when you're coming in to the league beginning play. And this happened with, with uh, past presidents And essentially, they just travel around to the leagues and just watch. They're not working because they don't know anything yet. So it doesn't give them a chance to to kind of get a leg up. And in my experience, that first year is is sort of a waste. And I just wish that uh, the goal was a little bit higher. I do want them to get the right person. I do think it's important. I just don't think it takes six months. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And look, I always appreciate you. Or I know earlier this year, you said, look, we're not good at promoting the draft or when the draft time is. Everyone retweet me. You know, I think it's it's important for those invested in the league to do it out of love, right? To call them out and say, look, we, right. we need to do better at this. Gotta we, do better. Need, we need to do more. Well, listen. I cannot wait to see you, uh, your, the, the links this season. I'm in DC, so I'll be at all those games covering and can't wait to talk to you then. And yeah, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thanks, Lindsay. Now it's that time in the show where we throw everything in sports that's enraged us, or at least are the top one we can think of this week <laughs> on a virtual incinerator and set them aflame. Shireen, want to get us started? 
We did a whole segment on what I want to burn. So thank you for that. But I do, I did find (laughs) ancillary burns as well. And this one was, I think was really deserves like a torch. There is an incredible boxer from Iran named Sadaf Khadem. And she was in France and she was engaging in a bout against Anne Chauvin, who she won. And this was in the city of Royan. And what ended up happening was it was like she was the first, you know, Iranian woman to compete internationally in boxing in this way. And it was really awesome. And then, you know, it was it's a wonderful thing. So she beat her. And then what ended up happening is her representatives ended up being notified that um, Khadem, there was an arrest warrant against her and her fight organizer, her promoter, Mahiar Monshipur. And the reason was, is because Khadem was that she had violated Iran's compulsory dress code by boxing in a vest and shorts, meaning like a tank top. She wore an absolutely beautiful emerald green top that said Iran on it, the colors of that flag, which are red, white, and green. And you know, she was a legally approved match. She was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, normal, whatever, but she wasn't wearing a hijab and she wasn't wearing full sleeves and she wasn't coached by a man. She was coached by a man. And then, you know, she even said, quote unquote, some people take a dim view of this. I'm really frustrated because this is someone who's doing an incredible amount of, you know, I would say not promotion, but just sort of amplifying her country and its greatness, the athleticism of women there. And then she's getting an arrest warrant put on her. Let women decide their own clothing. Let them choose what they want to wear. I don't understand why this is so difficult, particularly so soon after the AIBA Boxing Federation has let hijab in the ring. You've let hijab in the ring. That's wonderful. Let's take a step further, people, and let women decide completely what they want to wear. Like, why is this so hard? I'm so frustrated. I want to literally, metaphorically, burn men that make these decisions and enforce them onto women. So burn. 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 Jess. Yes. So probably most of you have heard that the famous cathedral, the Notre Dame, in the center of Paris, it's built, started in the 12th century. It's very old, very famous. That it was undergoing renovation. It caught on fire. A lot of the roof, one of the spires that you've seen in pictures, collapsed. There's a lot of damage. There's been this worldwide outpouring of feelings and emotions and also money to go to restore it. One of the places that has decided to donate money is the International Olympic Committee. It's going to apparently donate half a million euro, which is roughly $562,000 million, to the restoration of the cathedral because Paris is the 2024 Olympic host city. And the IOC president said, quote, the aim of completing the reconstruction in time for Paris 2024 will be an extra motivation for us all. Apparently, the cathedral is on the planned marathon and road cycling routes. So I guess it needs to look good. You know, I don't have a lot to say about this. (laughs) I did just imagine like where all that money could go. I could think of athletes or federations or Olympic committees that could really use it or, you know, give it to Paris because they're about to lose a ton of money or give it to Rio or Pyeongchang, any of these cities that have already hosted that face a huge financial loss in the long term. Any of these places could probably use that half a million. You know, in the scheme of things, 
I guess, I don't know what year this was, 2016, the IOC gave $2.85 billion to Olympic committees. So they have so much money throwing it around everywhere. You know, maybe it does not a big deal for them. But it is just really hard to watch them give money to a cathedral so it looks good on TV. So I just want to burn that. Burn. 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 Yeah, so... Let me tell you about a Michigan State student who decided to is also a survivor of Larry Nasser's sexual abuse. And she decided this year to start going back to basketball games because, you know, she's a lifelong fan, loves, you know, has always loved the team and sports, you know, supposed to like them. At the first game she attended, her first game back, per se, in Michigan State, this was at the Big Ten Championship, she had to deal with disgraced former Michigan State President John Engler with his having courtside seats because he still has courtside seats to the game. And he has, uh, you know, re-traumatized survivors over and over again with his words. We've been over that in the program. At her second game, which was the final four, Michigan State made to the final four. They were playing Texas Tech. While she was walking around with her sister in the con- getting concessions, a Texas Tech fan started screaming, Larry Nasser, Larry Nasser. Oh my God. Of course, this Texas Tech fan, I'm sure, did not know that there was a survivor right there, but that's the whole point. There are survivors of sexual abuse everywhere and i just want to throw onto the burn pile this type of sports fandom and this atmosphere that makes people think that using sexual abuse is a heckling tactic no 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 burn it burn okay my burn this week is metaphorically of the terrible British former marathon runner Paula Radcliffe, who came out with an opinion that is being used and was picked up by Breitbart, for example, (laughs) that the verdict of the case involving Olympic champion Castor Semenya, which would allow her to run without having to artificially depress her testosterone level will open the door for transgender athletes, which Castor Semenya is not, to claim an unfair advantage in women's sports, and it will be the, quote, death of women's sport. She also claims in her interview, which has been like in really major things like Sky Sports, that Castor Semenya had undergone the equivalent of male puberty. She claimed that Semenya didn't have to manage periods and menstrual cycles like she did. And once again, you know, just says inclusion of, of her will, will be the death of women's sports. Castor Semenya is a woman. Testosterone hasn't been proven to be this big of an advantage. You know nothing about biology. So just like run away or something <laughs> from this conversation, Paula Radcliffe, because all you're doing is, is really like opening the door for the death of civility and for attacking the most vulnerable people within sport and so i want to burn her interview burn okay 
After all that burning, let's spend some time celebrating the amazing accomplishments in our Badass Woman of the Week segment. Honorable mentions go to... First, the Chivas in Mexico, which this happened really a while ago uh, in March, but they celebrated International Women's Day by playing a mixed tournament, which they had never done before. So uh, I just wanted to shout that out, even though it's a little bit past its, its, its newness. Canadian golfer Brooke Henderson won the Lada Championship defending her title. She now has eight titles, tying her with Sandra Post, Mike Weir, and George Knudsen as the Canadians with the most LPGA or PGA Tour victories, and she is not even 22. Shireen did a hot take earlier this week with Meredith Foster about the IIHF Championships, in which the U.S. beat Finland in quite a controversial upset. Foster mentioned how much support Finland's Ice Hockey Federation has given the women, and it showed again they have decided to award the players a gold medal payout instead of silver, meaning they'll get 7,000 euro bonuses instead of 5,000. Yay! Yeah! (laughs) So cheers to Finland's Ice Hockey Federation and their investment in their women's hockey program. Also, Women's Champ League semifinal between Olympique Lyonnais Feminine and Chelsea had 29,900 people in attendance at Groupama Stadium in Lyon. This is the most supporters other than what has attended in a finals match. So congrats to Lyon for winning 2-1, to one, and they will meet Barca women's side in the final in Budapest May 18th. Congratulations to Saliha of Hunza Valley in Pakistan for being not only the league organizer, but also the first female referee for a small-sided football league in that region. UCLA gymnastics phenom Kyla Ross is the first UCLA gymnast and the second one in history to win all four events during her collegiate career. Hashtag Kyla Boss. Dutch footballer Vivian Midema who is nominated for both PFA Women's Player of the Year and PFA Women's Young Player of the Year. Philippines women's hockey team won a tournament in the United Arab Emirates and gets a promotion in the WCCOA hockey division in the IIHF. This week's a lot of acronyms. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck to all the women participating in the World Rugby Sevens in Japan. Also, Afghanistan has started a women's futsal league, and there will be 12 teams competing. And finally, can I get a drum roll? (laughs) The Badass Women of the Week goes to everybody involved in the first match of the Utah Royals at Rio Tinto Stadium, which had 18,015 adoring fans for the NWSL season opener after quite a topsy-turvy beginning and the end of the lifetime deal. It's wonderful to see people come out um, and support those women. So congratulations. In dark times, we do like to end the show by discussing what's good in our world. Shireen. Hi. So, (laughs) hey, have you found anything? (laughs) Uh, Hi. I'm leaving for Portugal on Monday, which is tomorrow because we're recording Sunday night. I would like to say thank you to Burn It All Down, my co host who I love 
desperately and dearly for switching the recording because I just wrapped up another provincial volleyball. My son's team played valiantly but lost in the championship round this morning. So Mustafa, I'm very proud of you. Like I said, Portugal. So I'm literally only going to have custard tarts for like 10 days. That's my plan. (laughs) Very excited about this. And I will report back. I will be taking a little bit of a social media break, but inevitably something will piss me off and it'll draw me back in. Another thing that's what's good. (laughs) And I I just want to say, because Amira is not here, Amira and I were both listed on Jack Jones Literary Arts site, and they put critics were reading. So it's an index of cultural critics of color, which include fine arts, race, gender and sexuality, food, popular culture, and sports. And I was so honored to be among Katie Barnes, Dr. Amira's Davis. Stan, David Dennis Jr., Shakia Taylor, who has been on the show multiple times, Tyler Tynes, and Christian Winfield. So there's like a strong percentage of people listed in this who have are associated with Burn It All Down. That's all I'm going to say about that. So that is <laughs> very, very good. Lindsay. <laughs> yes, I just want to thank Lizzo because her album oh, drop could too. not have <laughs> a better time for me. All and I just I'm just going to leave you with this. I know the song came out a little bit, but I've been playing, you know, slow songs. Stay for skinny hoes. Can't move all this here to one of those. I'm a thick bitch. I need tempo. So, that's kind of my motto uh this weekend as things have gone downhill. Thank you, Lizzo. Aw, Jess. I well, I was gonna say Lizzo, and she does <laughs> Serena Williams shout out in her song about girls. I can't remember the title, and she calls her Serena Willie, and I just think that is <laughs> spectacular. So my big thing was that a lot of this weekend I spent in San Antonio at the Fed Cup, which is a women's. It's the Federation's Cup, so it's women's tennis. Their teams uh, representing their countries competing against one another. It was the U.S. versus Switzerland. And so I was so charmed because yesterday I got to see Madison Keys and Sloane Stevens play. Madison didn't look so good. She actually lost her match against Golubic, who was, she's like a wall. Like, she doesn't give you anything. Like, you have to win. Um, And then Sloane Stevens beat Tamea Baczynski, and I I knew her name. Um, Sloane looked good. Like, Sloane looked like Wonder Woman, like physically in her outfit, (laughs) but also she just plays really exciting tennis. Like it was really fun to see it live. She's, she hits the lines a lot. She plays hard. She's really good at defense. And then I, I will just admit that I don't know a ton about the Fed Cup and how it actually works. So I assumed because they had already played that they wouldn't be playing today. But then, surprise, I showed up this morning and Sloan, or this afternoon, and Sloan was playing again. So I got to see her play Golubic. (laughs) She beat her. She looked fantastic again. And then Sophia Kinnan, an American who I didn't actually know at all, um, beat Baczynski. So the U.S. beat Switzerland. And it was just wonderful. And I just want to say now that I have admitted my lack of knowledge about the Fed Cup that everyone should be reading Lindsay's Tennis Tuesdays for the Nine, which we talk about a lot on here. You should subscribe to that. I'm already learning a ton from it. And I know that by reading more of it, one day I'll understand the Fed Cup better. But I just... I was so tickled to be able to be there and to watch in person, and Sloan was amazing. That's cool. Well, for me, I recently got a tattoo of a stack of books. 
Yay. Uh, <laughs> and they, it like, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, not my first one. And uh, they're sort of flying away on the tattoo. And I felt like such a fraud because I realized I hadn't read a book for fun in a long time, just for teaching. So I reread William Faulkner's A Fable and also Dewbreaker by Edwidge Danticott. And even though I'd read them before, they're so wonderful and inspiring and beautiful works. And I just sort of stole some time here and there. And it was great. So that was what was good in my world. That's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Don't forget, you can always burn day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise. It includes mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, bags. So go to teespring.com backslash stores backslash burn it all down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please do subscribe and rate and let us know what we did well or how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. That's all for this week. On behalf of Shereen Ahmed, Lindsay Gibbs, and Jessica Luther, I'm Brenda Elsie. Let's keep burning on, but not out. And I'm sorry.